0: Hey everyone, my name is Matt Boyd and I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church. Sojourn is a church that's committed to the gospel in the context of family living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. We hope that this sermon both inspires you and challenges you to live a life of intentionality where you seek to make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our church family, you can go online and check out our website at sojournpdx.org. Enjoy this sermon. Good evening, Sojourn. It's good to see everyone. For those of you who are visiting with us this week, my name is Matt, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church, and we are... Happy that you've chosen to be here with us, or maybe it was forced upon you. But either way, you're in the room tonight, so we are appreciative of that. Um, for those of you who are, are with us, your regulars, after tonight we'll have two more chapters left in the book of Ephesians. This has been a really great series for me. I'm hoping that you're getting as much out of it as I am. Although I know that I put a lot more time into studying the book of Ephesians than you probably do. And so I do want to let you know, though, next weekend, in case you haven't paid attention to the calendar and you didn't pay attention to the announcements, it's Easter Sunday, and so uh, we get to celebrate the resurrection of our risen Lord. We can do that every single week, by the way, but this is the, the known day of Easter Sunday, and we are anticipating that we'll have many visitors with us next week, um, hence the more chairs. Tonight was kind of our uh, dress rehearsal on how many chairs can we actually fit in here, and that we're hoping that more people will uh, come, and we're going to focus on a more traditional Easter patches next week, so that's why we're taking a break. I think Ephesians 5 starts out talking about sexuality and these different things. I thought, you know what, that's not really probably the Easter sermon that I want to preach, and so then you come back in two weeks, and then we'll jump back into Ephesians 5. And on the note of Easter, I want every one of you to strategically be thinking about those that you've invited or those that you will invite, and I want you to be praying for them, praying for them by name, individuals, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, and if you think, I haven't invited any of those people, well, it's not too late, because you have another week if you start tonight and saying, hey, I want you to come join us at this. I know in our city, it's, it's unlikely that people are going to show up to a gathering like ours, although I learned last year, Easter Sunday, still that one time a year, we have some friends who came last year for Easter, as far as I know, they have not been to another church service in the, entire next year, but they did come on Easter. And so I'm hoping that we can proclaim a clear gospel presentation to those that we would invite. And this is, once again, it's just that one time of year that people are a little more willing to take your invite. So on that note, we have invite cards, okay? They say, this is love and gives our information on the map, on the back has a map and it has the address. And so my challenge to every single one of you who call Sojourn your church, Sojourn your home, that you invite five people personally and that you hand this to them. Say, I'd love for you to join us. Okay. I invited our entire soccer team yesterday for the, the team that I coach. And I just said, hey, I won't be offended by this if you guys aren't offended that I offered it to you. And all of them took one. And so I'm praying that they will all show up next week as well. And then my other challenge, and I didn't really think this one through, so maybe this sounds like a lot, is that you give out 25 total cards. And And so, this isn't toot my own horn, but I gave out 30, I think, within 24 hours of having them, Um, going around and, you know, at doors or people I know, and I'm going to invite my my barista, I'm going to invite my bank teller and just different people like that. And so just, you know, that's kind of my challenge to you, five personal invites and you give out 25 cards. We ordered 500. I know it sounds like a lot, but it was only $10 more from ordering 250 to get 500 cards. And whatever's left, we have a team here next week and whatever's left, we're going to hand off to them and say, okay, it's Saturday. Afternoon, go invite people to this Easter gathering. As we transition, tonight what we're going to be talking about is a living a new life, which we see from Ephesians chapter 4. Um, and so Paul is going to use this metaphor for us tonight, which he's talking about taking off and putting on, to talk about what happens when you become a Christian or when Christ unites us in himself. I have three little boys, and little little kids typically like to play dress-up. Okay. Well, let's just be honest. We all like to play dress-up. I can guarantee you that if I find you on October 31st, most of you in this room are probably dressed up as some kind of character, whether it's at a party or walking Alberta or something like that. So we all enjoy dressing up. We all like to pretend that we're something that we actually are not. And so my kids like to dress up, but what's cool about kids is they're innocent enough they actually think that they're taking on that character. And so Elliot, my oldest here, is getting kind of out of that phase of believing that. But even my younger two, you know, so Liam's five. If Liam takes off his five-year-old outfit, his, you know, his 5T clothing, and he throws on a Batman outfit, in that moment, in his mind, like he has become Batman. He has those superpowers, and he can save the world in that moment. This is similar to the type of metaphor that Paul is going to use with us tonight about when you become a Christian. And so, of course, he's not talking about a pretend character outfit, so don't mishear me, or a change of clothes, but he's talking about a spiritual outfit. And where, with a spiritual outfit where true change has taken place rather than just changing one's outer clothing like a, like a Pharisee. And so you're probably familiar with this expression, the clothes make the man, which really isn't true physically. Like we can, we can say, I can, I can throw on any kind of clothes and try to pretend I'm something tonight. If I was in all leather and like, man, I'm this biker guy, Like, do you own a motorcycle? No. Do you know how to ride a motorcycle? No. So any of us can try to do that. So it's not true physically, but it is true spiritually. The clothes of Christ, think of it that way. It changes everything about us from the inside out. Christ changes us when we take on, on, on his clothing. And so when we put on christ we receive a new spiritual identity and we must now live differently as a result think about a law enforcement officer a firefighter an ems worker when they put on that uniform there's suddenly there's some expectations and responsibilities that go with that outfit so if we're out on alberta street and we see something going wrong that's illegal and then we see a police officer we're going to feel that confidence and say Police officer, and he, and he talked to you. This is happening over here, right? There's this, this expectation. There's a responsibility with that badge and with that outfit that they have. So in the same way, what tonight, what Paul is going to do, and he's going to say, when you become a Christian, you put off your old self. So you kind of put off your your old clothing, you strip that away, and you put on your new self, which is created new in the image of God. And the new life that comes attached with, with that is there's expectations and responsibilities that go with our new identity. So it's not so much like, okay, cool, you can, you can say I'm a Christ follower, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to continue living the way that I've always lived. It's like, no, there's, there's some new expectations and responsibilities that are now being put on you as you've identified yourself with Christ. And so Paul is going to testify to this new life, this experience in Christ, specifically by the Gentile Christians in Ephesus. And the main idea that we're going to see is that believers are called to live out their new identity in Christ with a lifestyle that is different from their pre-Christian past. And so if you you, uh, consider yourself a Christ follower follower, and you identify yourself with Jesus, start thinking with me about your past. What did my life look like before I came to know Jesus before I identified myself with Christ? So if you haven't, go ahead and turn your Bibles. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have blue Bibles in the back. Feel free to flip there. And we're going to be starting in verse uh, 17. We did the first half last week. So, Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to a practice every kind of impurity. And so Paul starts by reminding the Ephesian Christians and all of us that before we came to Christ, our minds, our feelings, and our actions, they were dark. Hopefully those of you who've been with us for a while, you remember Ephesians 2. He talked about how, how spiritually dark we were. He basically equated us with worshippers of Satan, which most of us were like, no, I never, never considered that about myself. And so we were spiritually dark. Everything about us, our minds, our feelings, our emotions, all of those things were dark. And he's not saying that the Ephesian Christians have now become Jews, but at the same time, he's, he's saying that they are no longer Gentiles as they once were. He's saying they've become a new creation in Christ. And so Paul is saying, lean into your newness that is yours in Jesus, and no longer live as you formerly did when you would identify yourself as a gentile modern translation for us in the room because you're you might be like "Well, i'm not a jew okay does that mean i'm a gentile or or what does that mean so modern translation for you and me is that paul is telling us that if we are in christ we should just no longer live as we formerly did so that's why i want you to think past what did it look like before and does it look different in your life now hopefully it does and that we should live differently than those that are not christians we should live, live differently than the world that is around us. We are to be a, a city within a city. We are to be a light upon a hill, and we should be known for being different. This is why, although we do have a 501c3 status, at least currently, that'll probably change in the coming years. But we're not just another nonprofit. We exist for those the non-members of what we're doing. We exist for those outside of of our gatherings, outside of the walls of what we're doing tonight. And we're different because Christ has made us different. It's not because of something that we've done. It's not because of me and not because of you. Because Christ has made us different and collectively as a group, we are committed to Jesus and committed to His calls and the mission that He has called us to. The former way of life in ours were marked by three negative things that we see in verses 18 and 19. The first is he says they are darkened. Romans one twenty two twenty one through twenty two says this: for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they are darkened. He says they are they're alienated. In Isaiah five twenty. says woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter and the third thing is he says they have become callous in Matthew 13:15, 15, it says, For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. The good news that we're going to see in this passage is that God can transform anyone by His grace. Many in the Ephesian church match the description that we just looked at. They, they were darkened. They were alienated, and they were calloused. And so they matched that description. But now, he's saying, now they are new in Christ, that something has changed. They're no longer identified by those things. And so as we read this, this should not cause us to be discouraged. We should not read this and go, oh, man, that sounds like the place that we live in, like people around us in the city and the environment we're in. That describes him. We shouldn't be discouraged at all. This should actually encourage us that the same grace that existed for the Ephesians and that transformed the life of the Ephesians, that same grace is available today for Portlanders. That excites me. I read this and go, There is hope for my neighbor. There's hope for my coworkers. There's hope for the people in this city that, that love saying we're the least religious, most atheistic city. While that is true, there's hope for them, and there's this grace that we see. And I've told you guys this before. We're in a very similar context to that of Ephesus from what we know. And so don't think, man, this is hopeless. You know, and you guys know I'm always preaching to myself up here as, a, as the church planter, right? I have to remind myself of these things, that God's grace is the same as it was then as it is today. Right. And I do think these first few verses should cause all of us in the room to pause, kind of laser focus in, and ask ask yourself, say, is there any area of my own life that would be described like this? Is there an area of my life or my heart that has entered into this, maybe this never-ending cycle of sin and self-destruction, where maybe I'm becoming callous in areas that, that I wasn't even aware of, that I wasn't even thinking through? And don't worry, I'm not thinking about anyone specifically in the room, but I want us all to do a kind of a self-inspection. I had to do that in my own heart this week. As I'm preparing, Say, God, is there any area in my heart where I'm just maybe being blinded here, and and, and, as I'm getting things revealed to me that, that, hey, if you're not careful, you're going to become calloused in that area. And this is not how God has designed for us to live, because this does not display the new creation that we are in Jesus. So one of the burdens I have as, as the leader of this church is that I think for, for years, you know you might be able to get away with something. These areas of darkness where you're, where you're kind of becoming callous to it. And, and you can kind of run the opposite direction. You might think, well, everything's going fine. like Things seem to be good. I'm getting away with it. No one else knows it. Maybe it's eating me up inside, but I'm good. Like on the surface, things look great. But my, my concern is what happens in five years? What happens in 10 years? Or what happens in 20 years? Or I think Paul would advise to say, deal with it now because there is grace for you. And there'll still be grace for you in 20 years. Don't mishear me, but deal with it now and, and then move forward in that. And so the point is clear. If God has made us new, we are to live an altogether different life. We are now to image God. So it's where you, once we look in the mirror and you just see yourself with your old ratty clothes, now you are to be somebody different. We've been having conversations. We've had some out-of-town friends in town. And one of the things they comment is they, as they've kind of walked the streets of the neighborhood in Portland, that, man, the people just look hopeless. And, and I think they're right about that. And I think they're really keen to pick up on that. And as I'm looking at it, I'm saying, yes, but once they're in Christ, and if they accept this message of grace that we're proclaiming, then it's that same, if you interact with that same person, you should go, man, something's different about them now. Like they're happy, and they're joyous, and they're smiling. Because now they're reflecting God. They're reflecting their, their creator. And so Paul's waking them up to this reality of, of who we were before we were Christians. He's saying, this is what you were known for, but now you should be different. He continues in verse 20. He says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And so Paul uses the terminology here of learning. And for the Christians, we have the ultimate teacher. Our ultimate teacher is Jesus. Bruce Bursma says this, Christ himself is the Christian's teacher. Even if the teaching is given through the lips of his followers, to receive the teaching is in the truest sense to hear him. So we have Jesus Christ as our teacher. So if you don't like my teaching, good news, Jesus is also your teacher. And Paul reminds them that they have heard and they were taught. He says, when you became a Christian, you didn't merely learn about the teachings of Jesus. You also developed a relationship with Jesus. (coughs) Christianity is not about moral rule keeping. It's not about religious attendance. It's not about this warm feeling that maybe you got at some point. It's not even believing in a God or it's not doing good things or even knowing facts about God. But it's about knowing Christ himself and having a relationship with the risen Savior. John 17:3 tells us this. And this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so Paul says it plain and simple right here at the end of verse 21. The truth is in Jesus. So if you're searching for the truth or you know someone searching for the truth, like people all over our city, we have the answer. The answer is in Jesus. That's why i doing a, an invite. That is nothing magic, right? And it may not even work, but if they come to this or don't come to this, it does not matter. But you have the answer if you are in Christ. And the answer is Jesus Christ himself. And you get to share life on life with these people and hopefully share that message with them. Paul tells us in verse 22, he says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on a new self, created after the likeness of God, and true righteousness and holiness. It's interesting, because when when people move to a city like Ephesus... Or if they move to a city like Portland, it's not uncommon for them to recognize there's a need for change. So you come to this city, and very quickly people are like, "Man, there's a, there's a lot of homeless, and man, we got to figure out something to do with that." And there's the traffic's really bad, and there's a there's a drug problem, and you know people recognize it, and that's a good thing. You know, I'm on the neighborhood board in Concordia, and so we get to talk about these these tensions within the city. But there's quickly competing voices for how we go about change. You know, what is it we're going to do to solve these these problems? In the case of ephesus there were all kinds of cults and religious practices and they were trying to tell the people here's how you're going to enact change come be part of our religious group come be part of our cult and go through these rituals and at the time there was a really interesting practice where if one was convinced that there was a certain way that was the right way and that's your solution then you would actually strip off your outer garment you know, I don't know exactly what this looked like. I don't know why I'm thinking like a peacoat. I think something long, like you strip out that outer garment and say like, OK, I'm getting rid of this. And now I'm putting on this garment. You know, maybe it's got a patch on it. It represents I'm part of this club. I'm part of this cult. I'm part of this, this religion now because I've identified and I believe this is the solution. This is the way that we're going to enact change. You know, when you think about our city of Portland. This happens all the time. You might be thinking, like, I don't, I don't see that. Maybe you do. We live in a pretty, pretty weird place, proud, pridefully so. But we have competing spiritual voices, demonic, right? And you might hear that thing. Whoa, where are you going with this? I believe there's demonic voices in our city. I believe there's spiritual voices that are competing for people's attention in the city of Portland. Then we have things that, that maybe don't seem as, as, as spooky to us, things like the gym, right? They're competing for your voice. They're saying, you can have this appearance, and this will make your life better, You've got things like your grocery store, your diet, right? the foods that you eat and that you put into your body. Here's the thing though, just because I joined a CrossFit gym, it does not guarantee that I'm gonna be jacked up. You guys know what I mean by saying jacked up, right? I'm just gonna come in and like, look at me, and like, I joined this CrossFit gym, and it just automatically happened. Like, no, I've actually got to participate in that gym. I've actually got to participate and be part of that gym. Just because I shop at New Seasons doesn't mean I'm suddenly eating healthy. It just means I'm suddenly spending my whole paycheck in order to eat something. <laughs> Or just because I'm on a diet, right? I'm doing the whole 30. I'm on month four, so we'll call it something different. I'm going to change the name. I'm creating my new plan. I'm on whole 30. And that doesn't mean I've actually changed my bad habits or that I suddenly crave uh, good foods for me. But, you know, The cravings for the bad foods, unfortunately, still haven't gone away. I still want salt and straw. I just can't get it out of my system. <laughs> and so this isn't what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is something way more profound. He's saying those may be good changes that you're making. Like for me to eat healthier, that's been a really good change for me. But they don't bring about the change that we truly need. You know, and th- think about last week. We talked about this a little bit. You know, just coming to a Sunday night gathering like this or even a Thursday night, like if you're hoping this is going to change your spiritual life, just showing up occasionally is not going to do it. Like you've got to be all in and fully participate with the body of Christ. As Christians, we seek to put off our old self and live a life in response to reality that is already ours in Christ Jesus. It's not the thing that you do. It's what Christ has done for us. God is the one that makes us reality in our lives. In Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10, he says, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so Paul is telling his audience that even Gentile readers can be part of this new creation in Christ. He's saying, even if you're a Gentile, then you can be part of this. Which means that we too get to be part of the new creation in Jesus. This is the freeing reality for those of you that have been attempting to use works for justification and righteousness. As Christ has declared, it's already been done on your behalf. Christ said, it's been done for you. You just have to embrace it, accept it, and walk in it. Jeremiah 17:9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, we all need transformation from within. It's nothing that we can just go and, 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 you know, I'm going to clean myself up on the outside. Like I can, can, any of us can pretend, especially on a night like tonight. We can show up. You know, I took a shower two hours ago and I'm looking all clean and throwing some clean clothes. And like, man, I've got it all together, regardless of what happened the rest of the week. But, But inside, what is happening in your life? And the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick is what he's telling us. How many of you live life and base your decision on how your heart feels? Think about your emotions. Well, I just don't know. This doesn't feel right. Or I don't know about this. I've got this weird feeling. I'm like, maybe that weird feeling is you need to go sit on the toilet. Right? I'm not trying to be crude here. But maybe that's what it is. Like if you're basing your decisions in your life on your feelings, do you know how I feel most days? Like church planners like this, you go on a roller coaster every single day. You'll have your highest moment and your lowest moment all in the same day. If I did every decision based on feelings, man, I can't imagine what my life would look like. And so what he's saying here is saying, stop living your life based on how you feel because your feelings will deceive you. Your heart left to itself is sick. You can't, you can't base your life decisions on that. In the words of C.S. Lewis, our hearts are idol-making factories. We must be very careful with our hearts and our emotions and our feelings. And if that's how we're living our lives, and Paul up to this point is focused on a lot of the negative sides of putting off oneself. And generally, if something is putting off to somebody, that's not a positive character trait. You know, someone's like, "Man, that's that's really putting off <laughs> what you're doing right there. What you're that's that's putting off. That's not a positive character trait." But then he's going to shift in 23 and 24. And he's going to start focusing on the positive side of transformation in one's inner self and in one's mind. So if you've been in church any length of time, if you grew up in church especially, but if you've been in church for a while, there's this risk that you're filling your head full of knowledge, but there's no real transformation taking place in your heart. And we see this happen in churches all over the country. But we desire is to see that we need to see an actual renewal of the transformation of both your heart and your mind take place. Which, as that starts happening, we'll start thinking in right ways and really in embodying this mandate from God rather than our own heart and feelings. As God starts to change us, then you start making these, these decisions. So, you have to be really careful with this passage, right? Hopefully, I can unpack that for you a little bit further. And though much of this letter is focused on the collective nature of the church, this whole letter to the Ephesians the last you know, several weeks, in verse 24, it kind of focuses on the individual aspects of the new man. He says that believers are created new in Christ. So you are a new creation. And believers are created after the likeness of God. Have you ever thought about that? Like You are a new creation if you're in Christ, and you're created after the likeness of God? Do you think of yourself that way? Like when you look in the mirror, you're like, man, I'm created in the image of God. That should cause us to rejoice and to praise God. Now, you may not like what you see in that mirror, but that's a separate thing. That's on you. That ain't on God. <laughs> and this points all the way back to Genesis where God created us, man, in his own image. We're told he created man and woman in his image. And what Paul is getting at in these first six verses is for us to leave behind our former lifestyle and he says, live out your new identity that you possess in Christ, an identity that That he alone possesses and that he alone can give us practically this means a few things if you're a parent in the room that your parenting of what you did before you were in Christ should now look different once you're in Christ how you react how you raise your children your marriage if you're married should look different once you're in Christ than what it would have looked like before you were in Christ and how that relationship works the way you work should look differently if you're working somewhere and you're not a follower of Jesus and all of a sudden you become a follower of Jesus, your co-workers should take note. What happened? What changed? Well, I'm actually following Jesus now. Probably a really weird, weird response for them, but also an awesome opportunity to share with them. And so how you treat people at least should look different. And when it doesn't, because you're probably all thinking, well, like we still know Christian marriages that have issues and we know parents who, who make mistakes. I'm, I'm one of those. And we know relationships don't always go the way that we hoped and planned. That is, is normal and that is going to happen. And when it doesn't, happen the way that we hope, how we handle it, by forgiving one another, reconciling with one another, should look differently, that we can press into relationship. You guys know I'm big on family here. We say that we're a family. Church is family. And we get an opportunity to say, you know what? That upset me. I'm telling you, instead of talking about you, I'm going to meet with you. I'm gonna, Let's get forgiveness and get reconciled. And we're going to continue on in this greater mission that God has called us to collectively. A lot of this also reflects the biblical tension of what theologians call the already and not yet. Think about because of your union with Christ, we are a new creation, the already. At the same time, because we're not perfected, kind of the not yet, we must continually seek to be renewed by the forsaking of the old self and embracing the new one. We tend to like to go back to that old pile of clothing and put on the old stinky stuff that hasn't been washed and renewed and cleaned up. I don't know why we just gravitate towards all of that. And so now we're going to see Paul transition to the second section of verses 25 through 32. He's going to start out with the word, therefore, and he's going to provide us a series of commands of what not to do, followed by a statement of what to do. So look at verse 25 with me. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And so Paul starts his second section by transitioning with the statement therefore to now show how it is that Christians are to put truths explored in the first set of verses into practice. We're going to see five commands listed within these first few verses. He says, do not lie to one another. That's a really good one. Do not lie to one another. How many of you have ever experienced lying within the church? You might be thinking, "Wait a minute, I've, I've experienced that, right? I've experienced that even within the last several months." Interestingly enough, we see that he's talking about anger, and many of you probably think of anger as sin. I know sometimes I think, I don't you're sinning!" Like, no, he says, "He doesn't say anger sin. He says be angry, but do what? No sin. Do not sin." No. John Stott said this, There's a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not pathetic, If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours too. And so in some ways, we should be angry. There's many things that we should be angry about in our culture. But we can be angry and not sin. I think that's a key difference there. So for some of us, it's really hard to ever get to the anger without sinning. So maybe you should not be angry. But we should be angry about many of the things we see happening in our city and in our culture and our world. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And he says, do not give the opportunity to the devil. It continues in verse 28, he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In first century Asia Minor, it was, it was typical to steal. It was, it was normal. Basically, it was part of the culture. And so Paul is talking about breaking free from the norms of society. Now, that may not be the norm of our society, but what are some of those norms of our society? Think of those things in your head. So he's saying, break free from these things that may be normal where you live, So he uses the thief here because that would have been normal for the audience as a way to illustrate how repentance impacts one's life and lifestyle so repentance involves both stopping the negative things and starting the positive things so at that time many people would be forced to steal in order to maintain themselves and their families just to survive and if it had been part of their life before he's saying it has no place now So maybe you had to do this at one time, but now that you're in Christ, it should have nothing to do with that. And so the thief must stop stealing and start doing, in this case, doing honest work. So once again, think through those things. What is normal in our culture? Things that would be celebrated, and maybe you even did at one time, but you're going, you know what? As one in Christ, as a new creation, created in the image of God, that would not be christ honoring for me to do any longer. He continues on his list in verse 29. He says, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Once in Christ, our speech should be differently than it was previously. Now, many immediately think of this as not saying four-letter words. That's what I used to think of. Like, oh, that means don't cuss. So then when I would cuss, I mean, I never have. But when I would cuss, I'd like, oh, no. I just, you know, that, that, what, is that what this is saying here? While in general it's probably a good idea not to cuss and not to say a of word, that's not what I think the point is here. What he's saying is your speech should be different once you are in Christ. Your speech should be used for building up the church. Remember, this whole letter is, is about, about the church, and we're talking about being united in Christ. He's saying, is your speech being used in a way that you're building up those around you, or is it being used in a way that you're tearing down those around you? In Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37, it says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your, your words you will be condemned. So where previously I would cut you down, I would slander you, I would talk negatively about you, that's called gossip in case you're wondering, now as a new creation, that's what, not what we should be known for. We should be known for the opposite. Instead of cutting you down, I should now want to build you up. Instead of talking about you, I should want to talk to you. And if someone comes to me and they're talking negatively about you, I should say, hey, wait, wait a minute. Have you talked to them? Why don't you go talk to them? And you guys get that right, because I want to build up the church. I don't want to get in these, this huddle of breaking people down. And then we should be known for the ones who use grace with one another. So when maybe someone does cut you down, or maybe they cut you off in traffic, we should say, you know what, I'm going to use grace with that person. I'm going to extend grace. You know why? Because you need me to extend it, and I need you to extend it. We should be known for the ones that forgive one another. When something's done wrong against us, or we do something wrong to one another. Because grace and forgiveness were first extended to us. It's just us trying to model Jesus' model being in Christ. In verse 30, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Grieving the Holy Spirit means to cause Him sorrow by your sin. And we're told that the Holy Spirit lives within inside of us. And the Spirit is grieved when we don't live out the reality that Paul has shown us. Paul is saying, this reality is yours. It's already yours in Christ Jesus. You don't have to work for it. I think that's where we get mistaken. We think we've got to work for these things. No, it's already been declared over you. It has been given to you in Jesus. And so it's grieved when you don't walk in that. And we were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who protects us and preserves us until we reach an inheritance of authenticity of our acceptance by God. The Holy Spirit is our down payment of our share in the eternal kingdom of God. I care which sermon, that was probably the second or third, we kind of looked at that idea of a down payment on a house, you know, and then that's your guarantee that you're going to buy this house. And so the Holy Spirit is our down payment of the eternal kingdom of God, the inheritance that is ours as sons and daughters of King Jesus. And 31, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And so we see another list kind of falling all under all he says put away bitterness every kind of bitterness put away your wrath put away your anger put away your clamor put away your slander put away your malice and all these represent things of who you were formerly these represents how you used to act Maybe you're someone who used to get really, really angry, and then once you're in Christ, Christ kind of changed you. Now you don't deal with the anger. Or maybe you used to be known as the one who cut down everyone, who slandered everybody. You were the the high school bully, and you've been, you know, had to eventually try to flee away from that identity because you were changed in Jesus. And then Paul brings it home for us in verse 32 by telling us be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Now my question is, does this come naturally to us? No. This doesn't come naturally to us. For whatever reason, all the other lists, the bad lists, like that comes natural to us. Cutting people down and talking bad about people. And that's what comes natural to us. Forgiving one another, being tenderhearted. And as as Christ has done that, that that stuff is hard. It's challenging. But we do these things because we remember that we were first forgiven. We, too, need this forgiveness daily. So we need to extend this forgiveness to others as Christ extended to us, and then we need to receive it as well. And we're reminded of this in the Lord's Prayer. It says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So it would be easy for us to look at this last set of verses and think of this as a list of do's and don'ts. And maybe some of you are thinking that. Maybe you're like, this is, this is like a list of do's and don'ts. I thought I was told that's not what church is about. And you may be thinking, this is what I hate about religions. This is what I hate about Christianity is, is they always like to bring up these lists. Let me make sure that I say this part very carefully and listen to me. Paul is not giving us a list of do's and don'ts. But what he's doing is he's presenting us with an opportunity to live out the reality of what Christ has done for us and has been declared for us up to this point. So let me just repeat that whole little phrase again. He's not giving us a list of do's and don'ts. What he's doing, he's presenting you with an opportunity. So don't leave here tonight thinking, okay, i got to make this whole list of what I should do this week and what I shouldn't do. You should leave here tonight going, I've been presented with an opportunity to live out the reality of what Christ has done. If you've been with us for the first three chapters, you know what that is, hopefully. For what Christ has done for us and has been declared over me me up to this point. In two weeks, when we pick back up in Ephesians, we'll, we'll start out in verse, uh, chapter five, verse one. He says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And so he's not communicating a message filled with law, but one filled with grace and imitating that has already been given to us in Jesus. Okay, as This has been lavished upon us. Jesus, who wore our identity on the cross, Let that sink in for a minute. All those those old clothes, those sins, all those negative lists, Jesus wore that for you on the cross. And ever since, you've gotten to wear His. You've gotten to exchange places with Him. You've gotten to exchange what that looks like, what that reality looks like. And now God, as a result, sees us as Jesus. This is why we can be called saints, because we are looked at through the lens of what Jesus did on our behalf. As Easter approaches Remember, there's many in our city that have not heard of the good news of Jesus, death and resurrection. And maybe they have heard it, and maybe they've just rejected it. They're not wearing the identity of Jesus Christ yet. They're still wearing their, their old filth. They're wallowing in it. And so this week, I want to make sure that you're being mindful and to pray for salvation of those in our city. Pray that God will remove their blinders, that God would open their ears, and that His Spirit would rain down on this place. <laughs> Because there's so many in our community, so many in our neighborhood and so many in our city and our world that still are without Jesus. They're without the hope that Paul has been showing the Ephesians and and showing us the last several weeks. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3.9 that the Lord is not willing that any should perish. And His greatest desire is for all to come to repentance. And so let's ask Him to use us to bring salvation to our city this coming week as we go into Easter. But then even beyond that, pray with me. Thanks for listening to our sermons podcast. We are a church that's committed to the gospel and the context of family living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. If you'd like to learn more about what God is doing in our lives, reach out to us by emailing info at sojournpdx.org or check out our website. We look forward to hearing from you soon.